0: Chapter 17 of North Pole Voyages by Zaharia a. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17. Back again. We tarried in our camp full two hours. We obtained a pot of hot coffee and rest. The whips had been used so freely that they required repairing, for without their efficient help there could be no progress. All being in readiness, we were about starting when three Eskimo came in sight. They were those we had left asleep in our hut. Dr. Hayes and Mr. Sontag seized their guns and rushed down the ice foot to meet them. They stood firm until our men, coming within a few yards, leveled their guns at them. They instantly turned round and threw their arms wildly about, exclaiming in a frantic voice, Namik! 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 don't shoot don't shoot don't shoot dr hayes lowered his rifle and beckoned them to come on this they did cautiously and with loud protestations of friendship by this time whipple had come up each of our men seized a prisoner and marched him into the camp reaching the mouth of the cave the doctor turned kalutuna round toward his sledge pointed to it with his gun and then turning north gave him to understand mostly by signs that if he took that whip which lay at his feet, and drove us to the Omiaksok ship, he should have his dogs, sledge, coat, boots, and mittens, but if they did not do so, that he and his companions would be shot then and there, and to give emphasis to his warts, he pushed him away and leveled his gun. The chief went sidling off, crying, Namik, Namik! at the same time imitated the motion of a dog driving with his right hand and pointed north with the other his declaration was don't shoot i will drive you to the ship dr hayes seeing he was understood told kalutuna that the dogs and sledges were the white men's until the promise was fulfilled to which he answered tima all right approaching with smiles and the old familiarity as though some great favour had been done him He could respect pluck and strength, if nothing else. The prisoners had been awakened by our escaped dogs, which, on arriving at the hut, ran over the roof and howled at startling alarm. Their masters starting up, found means of lighting a lamp, and being refreshed by sleep and the food we left, entered at once on the pursuit. Coming to the abandoned sledge, they harnessed the dogs and made good time on our trail, bringing away with them as many of our treasures as they could well carry. They were rare-looking Eskimo just at this moment. They had cut holes in the middle of our blankets and thrust their heads through. One had found a pair of cast-off boots and put them on. The others had bundled their feet up in pieces of blanket. Neither of them had suffered much from cold. We expressed our confidence in their promises by restoring their clothes. They jumped into them. "'happy as Yankee children on the 4th of July. "'They were as obedient, too, as recently whipped spaniels. "'They touched neither dogs, sledge nor whip until they were bidden. "'Onward to Netlik we shouted, as we mounted our sledges and dashed away. "'Our distant approach was greeted by the howling of a pack of dogs, "'which snuffled our coming in the breeze. "'As we drew nearer, men, women and children ran out to meet us.' As soon as we halted, fifty curious and wandering savages crowded around us, pressing the questions why we were brought by their friends, and why we came at all. But our bearing was that of those who came because they pleased to come, without condescending to give reasons why. We told Kalutuna that three of us would go to each of the two huts, and stop long enough to eat and sleep, and then we would continue our journey. A renewed leveling at him of our guns, and pointing northward, brought out the prompt Tima, giving the gaping bystanders a hint of the nature of our arguments for the services of the friends. When we had entered the huts, the crowd rushed in too, making quite too many for comfort or safety. We told our hosts to order out all but the regular occupants of the huts as many strangers had come in who were lodging in the adjoining snow-huts. They did not understand our right to give such a command until a hint about our booms convinced them. Ours was the right of self-preservation by superior strength. We had traveled fifteen successive hours, making in the time fifty miles. So weary were we that even these Eskimo dents "'affording, as they did, refreshment and rest without danger of freezing, "'were delightful places of entertainment. "'The woman kindly removed our mittens, boots and stockings, "'and hung them up to dry. "'They then brought us frozen meat, "'which intense hunger compelled us to try to eat, "'but the air of the hut was one hundred and twenty degrees warmer than that without, "'and we fell asleep with the food between our teeth. "'Having taken a short nap, We were aroused by the mistress of the house, who had prepared a plentiful meal of steaming bear steak. We ate and slept alternately, until the stars informed us that we had rested twenty-seven hours. We intimated to Kalutuna that we would be going, and in a few moments we had everything in readiness. Our next halting place was Northumberland Island, a distance as we traveled of thirty miles, which we made in six hours. Here we found two huts belonging to our old friends, Amalatuk and his brother, Mr. Rock. We divided ourselves into companies of threes as before, and made ourselves at home in the two households. Mr. Rock, aided by his wife, and the witch-wife of his brother, was kindly attentive. Our fare was varied by abundant supplies of seabirds, which in their season swarm here. We tarried until our physical strength was sensibly increased. We learned that Peterson and Bonsal had been at this hospitable halting place, eaten and rested, and pushed northward under the guidance of Amelatuk. Our next run was to Herbert Island, and passing round its northwestern coast, we struck across to the mainland and halted near Cape Robertson at the village of Karsuit we were on the northern shore of the Mouth of whale sound we had made a run of fifty miles halting to eat our frozen food only once we had walked much of the way to prevent being frozen and to lighten the load of the dogs over the rough way the village consisted of two huts half a mile apart one of them belonged to sipso our old enemy he received us gruffly and because he felt that he must His only kindness was a fear of our booms. The huts were crowded, there being here, as at Netlik, many stranger visitors from the south. We were almost suffocated on entering, passing as we did, from a temperature of fifty degrees below zero to one seventy-five above. Our entertainers immediately laid hold of our clothes and began to strip us. They were much surprised at our persistence in retaining a certain part of them. We feasted on seal-flesh, slept, were refreshed and encouraged. Our stay was short, and our next run was to a double hut, a distance of thirty miles, which we made in five hours. We had been joined at Karsuit by an old hunter named Utinach. We were on four sledges, the dogs were in good condition, the ice smooth, the drivers full of merriment and shouts of Ka! Ka! by which their teams were stimulated onward. Our next run was to be one of sixty miles, including the rounding of Cape Alexander and ending at Etah. It was to be a terrific adventure we well knew. At the mention of it our drivers shrugged their shoulders. The natives dread the storms of this Cape, with their blinding snows, as the wandering Arabs of the desert do a tempest-cloud of sand. The first twenty miles was made comfortably. But we were yet many miles from the rocky fortress guarding the Arctic Sea, when we were saluted with a stunning squall. It cut us terribly, though it was but an eddy, for the wind was at our backs. It was only a rough hint of what we might expect when the giant of the Cape sent his blast squarely in our faces. The night came on, lighted only by the twinkling stars. The ice was smooth, and the wind at our backs drove our sledges upon the heels of the dogs, who ran howling at the top of their speed, to keep out of their way. The cliffs, a thousand feet above us, threw their frowning shadows across our path, pouring upon the plain clouds of snow-sand, and shouting in the roaring wind their defiance at our approach. Yet we sped swiftly on, until a dark line was seen ahead, with wreaths of frost smoke curling over it. Emmerk, emmerk! shouted the Eskimo. Water, water! echoed our men. Our teams reined up within a few yards of a recently opened crack, now twenty feet across and rapidly widening. We were quite near Cape Alexander, but between it and us was ice, across which numerous cracks had opened. Against the cape was open water whose sullen surges fell dismally upon our ears. It was plain that we could not go forward upon the floe. To mount the almost perpendicular wall to the land above was impossible. To turn back and thus face the storm would be certain death. Our case seemed desperate. Even the hardy Eskimo shrunk at the situation and proposed the return trail, against which to us at least ruinous course they could not be persuaded. "'until the pistol argument was used. "'In our peering through the darkness for some way of escape, "'we caught a glimpse of the narrow ice-foot "'hanging over the water at the bottom of the cliff. "'Along this we determined to attempt a passage. "'We ascended this ice-foot by a ladder made of the sledges. "'Then we ran along the smooth surface "'and soon passed the open water below. "'But we had advanced a short distance only, before a glacier barred our progress and turned us to the flow again. A short run on this brought us to another yawning crack, with its impossible water. We ran along its margin with torturing anxiety, looking for an ice bridge. Finding a place where a point of ice spanned the chasm, within about four feet, Dr. Hayes made a desperate leap to gain the other side. Lighting upon this point, it proved to be merely a loose, small ice raft which settled beneath his feet. Endeavouring to balance himself upon it to gain the solid flow, beyond he fell backward and would have gone completely under the water, but Stephenson, standing on the spot from which the doctor jumped, caught him under the arms and drew him out. As it was, he had sunk deep into the cold stream, filling his boots and wetting his pants. In the meantime a better crossing was found and Dr. Hayes followed the last of the party to the other side. We returned to the Icefoot and found a level and sufficiently wide driveway, and made good progress, soon reaching and running along that part of the icy road which overlooked the open water below. We met with no interruption until we came to the extreme rocky projection of the Cape. Here the ice foot was sloping, and for several feet was only fifteen inches wide. Twenty feet directly below was the icy cold dark water, sending up its dismal roar as it waited to receive any, whose foot might slip in attempting that perilous passage. The wind howled fearfully, as it swept over the cliff and along the ice-foot in our rear, pelting us incessantly with its snow sand. Halt was passed along the line, and the whole party men and dogs crouched under the overhanging rocks seeming for the moment like beings doomed to die a miserable death in a horrid place there was no time for indecision and the pause was but for a moment dr hayes taking off his mittens and clinging with his bare hands to the crevices of the rock was at the first to make the desperate experiment his shout announcing his safe landing on the broad belt beyond The dangerous place, welling up as it did from a heart overflowing with emotions of joy and gratitude, sent a thrill of gladness along the shivering and shrinking line, of which even our poor dogs seemed to partake. The teams, each driven by its master, were next brought up, as near as safety permitted, to the narrow, slippery pathway. The dogs were then seized by their collars, and one by one dragged across safely next the sledges were brought forward turning them upon one runner they were pushed along until the dogs could make them feel the traces then a fierce shout from their drivers caused a sudden and vigorous spring of the animals which whirled the sledges beyond the danger of sliding off the precipice cautiously one by one then came the remaining members of the party all holding their breath in painful suspense and each, we trust, in silent prayer until all were safe over. The divine arm and eye had been with us. We could not have gone back, nor have turned to the right or left. A few inches less of width in the ice foot, or slightly more slope, and we had all perished. Except some frostbites on our fingers, every man was all right. We had traveled five miles on the ice shelf above the foaming sea, we now had a smooth, safe ice-foot, which conducted us soon to the solid ice-field of Eta Bay. Across this, fifteen miles, we scampered with joyous speed, and arrived at the village of our old Eskimo friends, a worn and weary but thankful party. Good news met us at the hut. Peterson and Bonsal had, we were told, preceded us, and arrived safely at the ship. But our trials were not ended, there was a sledge journey of ninety-one miles yet awaiting us. Dr. Hayes' frosted feet gave him intense pain, and he could not sleep. There was danger if the heat of the hut thawed them, that he would lose them altogether. So after only four hours' rest, he whispered his intention of a speedy departure towards the advance, to Sontag, who was to take charge of the party. He then crept stealthily out of the hut, accompanied by Utinach, the faithful Eskimo from Karsuit. Sontag was not to mention his departure to his comrades, until they were rested and refreshed. He had hardly started before the rest of our company were at his heels. They did not wish their leader to endure the perils of the journey without them. Besides, they too had reason for a desire to be speedily at the brig. The wind was high. The flow full of hummocks, the cold intense, and altogether the j- journey was not unlike in its dangers that already endured. Whipple, ere they had reached the end, began to whisper that he was not cold, and finally fell from the rear sledge, benumbed and senseless, and was not missed until he was a hundred yards behind. He was lifted again to the sledge, but others gave signs of the approach of the same insensibility. But the track becoming smoother, the drivers cracked their whips and shouted fiercely, goading onward their teams to their utmost speed in the fearful race for life. Now old familiar landmarks are past. The hull of the dismantled ship opens in the distance, and its outlines grow clearer until we shout with feeble voices, but in gladness of heart, back again. During the last forty hours we had been in almost continual exposure with the thermometer eighty degrees below zero, in which time we had traveled a hundred and fifty miles. During the run of ninety-one miles from Itach to the Advance, we encamped only once, but failing to light our lamp or to secure any protection from the cold, we immediately decamped and finished our run of forty-one miles. End of chapter 17.